Hello and welcome to another Working From Home episode of No Such Thing As A Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that the Holy Roman Emperor once made every citizen of Milan pluck a fig from a mule's genitals with their teeth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's so, so much to unpack here. <laughs> I've, yeah, my main question is about the dynamic of, as in, how do you get a fig into a mule's genitals? Like, which bit of the genitals mm. is it going into? Oh, well, I'm, I'm so glad you've asked both of those questions, actually, <laughs> because I do need to be more specific. I believe it was the anus, uh, according okay. to most sources, which which we're counting as part of the genital. Is that a genital? Yeah, I don't, I, definitely I don't usually... not. No, no it's way. not a genital. <laughs> you can't generate new life. <laughs> Sorry. So... Anna, we've got a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. You could tuck it between the penis and the ball bag, I, I suppose. I but thought... Then... Uh, can I just say, I thought it was a female mule. No. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was going in the vagina of the mule. Yes. Wow. Some sources say genitals, some sources say anus. Was Basically, there one mule which did all of that's which a, would stood in for every citizen of Milan because right. that's a huge queue. It's a long queue, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you'd have to you'd have to but set up a citywide system. Of, we didn't do this like, over one day, Andy. This wasn't like a. <laughs> this was a years long process. <laughs> so like jury duty. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, yeah. You get a letter. Oh, man. <laughs> what is it? You're going to war? No, worse. <laughs> okay, look. Um, I'm, oh, I'm I have one gonna... more question. All oh, right, great. Um, <laughs> I think it's more important. He's the Holy Roman Emperor. Why is he doing this kind of shit? Mm. What, didn't have much on. Didn't have much on. Um, no, this. so this was at Milan, uh, was causing him, Frederick I, Frederick Barbarossa, a lot of problems. This was 1162, and it was all full of uprisings. And basically, uh, he sent his wife, went to visit Milan, and the people of Milan disliked Frederick so much that they humiliated his wife, tied her to a mule and made her ride backwards on this mule around the city. So he, Fred, was like, you humiliated my wife to make up for it. I'm going to make you all do this thing. And uh, actually, in answer to your very good question, Andy, about how you get the fig into the mule's anus or vagina, sources differ, um, you would have to put it back into the oh. genital with your teeth. So <laughs> they have to pluck other... it out and then return it. That was my other question. Do you get to eat the fig afterwards? I'm afraid That's I think true. it's the Massive same thing. Fig expenditure. That's true. Oh yeah, and you don't want to be at the back of that queue, you know, with a manky fig. <laughs> that, really that would be disgusting. Yeah. Um, Anna, in fairness yeah. to the people of Milan, they were being sieged by the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. It wasn't yes. like they just humiliated his wife just because they didn't like him. It was more because he was attacking their city. It was bigger than that, yeah. He was besieging the city. Um, they he, he was having a lot of problems at the time with various cities he was supposed to rule. And yeah, the Milanese did not like him. And actually, as part of this uprising, the three wise men were moved. So Milan was known for having the skulls of the three wise men. And ah. then when Frederick sort of won beat them down, he had the skulls removed and moved to Cologne Cathedral and they're still there today. 
which is quite wow. amazing. This is like a thousand yeah. years ago almost. I think if everyone was doing it, I would have no problem in doing the fig challenge. I mean, it would, that's what it would feel like. It would feel like yeah. it feel like the ice bucket challenge. They just... were actually also raising money for a charity, weren't they? It was a donkey sanctuary, in fact. <laughs> you had to nominate five people to remove a pig from a mule's genitals afterwards. Yeah. Maybe there was a sense of solidarity amongst them because they'd all suffered together. But they did. So what they had to do was they had to get it out with their teeth and then take it to the executioner, who was the person who would have beheaded them if they failed. And then they had to uh-huh. say, echo il fico. Uh, as in, look, here's the fig, and then they had to replace it. And wow. apparently in Milan, after that, sticking your thumb between your uh, middle finger and your index finger, I guess, like I'm doing right now, um, is a sign of, it's called known as making the fig, or it was known as making the fig, and it was an insult based on this. That's so. still an insult quite a lot around the world, actually, uh, doing the fig, because uh, it looks mm-hmm. a bit like a vagina if you do it this yeah. way. Yeah, it does. Way. And it's kind of still in uh, Russia, for instance, if you do that. It's kind of, it doesn't mean like a really, really bad insult these days. It's just a bit like giving the Vs kind of thing. Okay. It does mean your mother's vagina. Like in Madagascar, I read that if you went like that, you are going, it's not screw you, it's your mother's vagina. I can't but speak for no, Madagascar, but I can speak. I've had it done to me in Russia. That's all I can say. Uh, right. and, it's, and it's not because my father-in-law did it to me and apparently it's not a massive insult. It's, it doesn't mean get away from my daughter. Sure, means... that's what Polina told you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was actually complimenting you, Jeff. <laughs> this is a, th- there's a weird thing because in Italy, there's a really weird linguistic confusion, right? Because if you say, I hope I get this right, Bella Fico, means nice fig, but bella figa means beautiful women's genitals. So there's a weird verbal link between the two as well. Yeah. And the, the BBC, web, a really old BBC talk board, had a thing about someone who'd been trying to order figs in Italy. And they said, I started off by asking how old was the fige, how much I loved it when it was fresh, as long as it wasn't too old, how I loved to eat it, and on and on. The lady was clearly shocked, but I kept going on and on trying to explain how much I liked it. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's very much got genital associations mm. around the world, hasn't it? And it looks mm. like a... Famously, like a look, we all know what it looks like, guys. We don't need to, <laughs> don't need to go into that. Um, can I just, I just wanted to say one more thing I really enjoyed about this besieging that Frederick was doing mm-hmm. because I didn't know about this. So he um, was really into underground warfare. So when he was besieging uh, Kramer, which he besieged before Milan and Milan, he uh, dug a lot of tunnels. And I didn't realize in medieval times, tunnel warfare was a huge deal. So you're besieging a city and you dig a tunnel underneath and then you countermine from mm. the other end, as in you dig your tunnel and you would meet in the middle. And then two enemies, on it would have to be big enough to take uh, you on horseback. And then the two enemies no. would meet Hang in on, this what? tunnel. Yeah. The horses would go down into the tunnel and they'd meet on horseback and this was a means of combat. And yeah. loads of people did it. So at Agincourt, they had a lot of these. They were dug by the Welsh no miners. No way. It's they were so good cool. at Honestly, so what happens is you've got two armies coming at each other and it is big enough to get a horse down, but only one horse. So it means mm-hmm. that the person at the front of your battle can only fight against the person at the front of their battle. Oh my and God. And then whoever wins that then fights against the next person in the queue. And you just keep going down and going down until then. It's like playing Conkers, basically. It's like that. That's extraordinary. And the other thing is that um, you would have these tunnels going towards a city, but you might also dig a tunnel underneath the other person's tunnel so that they kind of fall through it 
and then get trapped and then you can kill them. And I read oh, once that that's where the word undermine comes from, although I'm not mm. sure if that's right. Oh, wow. I like it though. Yeah. Henry V was very famous for having a very impressive fight in one, apparently. Mm. And something else you could do if they dug a tunnel under yours and popped out on your side, they often had big tubs of boiling urine and water <laughs> that they'd throw on you as you emerged. Oh. You could only come out one at a time. Oh. I can't believe they met each other, though. You would assume it would be a bit like, you know, when you close your eyes and you have to get your index fingers to touch each other yeah. and, and they miss. I would assume it must have been so often. You, you can hear each other digging underground if you keep quiet. You can hear the noise. Each, team had, um, each team had a golden mole, didn't they, which could hear where yeah. the other team was coming <laughs> yeah. from. Um, above the gates of Milan, until the 1500s, there was a work of art showing a woman lifting her skirt and clipping her pubic hair with a large pair of shears. So whenever you went to Milan, this is the first thing you would see. Wow. Uh, And no one really knew why it was there, but they think that probably it dates from this particular siege by um, Frederick Barbarossa. Uh, And it could be that when Barbarossa was attacking the city, one of the women at the walls did this and they decided to memorialise it. It could be because Milan asked for some money from um, the Empress Leobissa, who was in Constantinople at the time and was extremely wealthy and really important um, empress. And they wanted money from her to try and stop Frederick from attacking the city. Um, But she said no. And so they did this picture of the woman as kind of an insult to her. Um, but okay. no one really knows why it was there. But then it got taken down by Cardinal Carlo Baremio in the 1500s because he wanted his eyes only to gaze on the stars of heaven. Mm. He yeah, thought, as mm. opposed to the towering genitals and pubic hair of a giant woman. I he, suppose that's fair enough. He didn't include that part in the quote, <laughs> but of course he would have said it. Implied. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Barbarossa, by the way, died because he didn't want to queue. He hated queuing. Um, he was that's like you you hate queuing I hate queuing because I always think at the front of it I'm going to have to pluck a pig from a mule's vagina (laughs) Uh, but they were going to cross a river and he didn't want to queue so he went across the river in a bit where you're not supposed to he didn't want to go over the bridge or whatever and he drowned oh Barbie I've read a bunch of theories about how he died, which I think that's the sort of most accepted version of it. Um, but it is shrouded in a in a bit of mystery. And one of the most confusing things uh, that I read was that it was a foot of water, which is very <laughs> hard to drown in. Uh, supposedly that could have happened because he was wearing such heavy armour that he was just mm, pulled down. Yeah. Um, and there was also theories of fatigue, uh, that he had actually gone just for a wash and that he yeah. was so tired that the sun just kind of just, he lost energy. But yeah, what a way to go. And the Nazis thought he was still alive because there's like a yes. um, an ancient idea that he's like King Arthur and he lives in a mountain. Uh, and whenever Germany's about to fall, he'll come out and save everyone. And he yes. can't leave at the moment because his uh, beard is stuck in a table. So yeah, it's what? so big. It's, it's grown. Yeah, it's grown through the table, and he doesn't have scissors. But he does have a boy who's loose, who he sends out to check how Germany's doing every so often. So he'll just wave him out, and he'll is come this back. Real? It's not right. Well, according yeah. to the Nazis, it was real. And they would have been so disappointed if if he came out and said, right. Don't worry, Germany's going to be safe. All I need is 250,000 mules. I need a large queuing system. And I need a bunch of figs. <laughs> but then, of course, that's why they called, you'll know, Andy, Operation Barbarossa, mm. which was yeah. the attack on the Soviet Union. That was named after him because he was such a, a top guy, according yeah. to the Nazis. And also um, another Operation Barbarossa where they killed all the intellectuals. That was also named after him. Mm. 
I can't believe the sentence was just said, who believes us, the Nazis and Dan. (laughs) (laughs) That's not something I want to be a part of. But can I just say that by saying, who believes this, the Nazis and Dan, I'm saying that you're not a Nazi. Otherwise, I would say the Nazis, including Dan, who is also a Nazi. He just shares similar ideas and (laughs) beliefs. Um, Do you know what happened to Barbarossa after he died? Oh, what? <laughs> he got his beard stuck in a table somewhere. Okay, and he, okay. He's still waiting okay. for those shears from that poor pubic haired woman. If, if you don't believe the theory of Dan and his Nazi buddies, then no. this is what happened to him. <laughs> so his body was apparently, they tried to preserve it in vinegar. Um, again, like a conquer, but it didn't, it didn't work. And he was buried in three different places. This sounds like such a difficult, confusing burial process because his flesh was put in the church of St. Peter in Antioch, his bones in the Cathedral of Tyre, and his heart and inner organs in another church that was in Tarsus. Wow. But that's a rough, that's a rough gig, having to separate the flesh from the bones. Mm, yeah. yeah. You wouldn't want the flesh, I think. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think the Antioch's got a raw deal because that's just a, <laughs> a pile of grossness, isn't it? <laughs> Speaking of flesh, um, Fix have flesh. So shall we talk oh, yeah. about Fix? Yeah. Yeah. Um, why not? Why not? They're very, very important. Up to 70% of the animal life in the rainforest depends on fig trees. Um, because they're so high in energy, they fruit loads of times every year. They grow really well in that kind of environment. And basically, they're eaten by lots of things, and then those things are eaten by lots of things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So without figs, we wouldn't have lots of other rainforesty stuff. <laughs> we wouldn't be here today. <laughs> They're amazing, aren't they? Yeah. I'd, I'd never looked into figs before. So I read a quote from Charles Dickens, which he said, train up a fig tree in the way it should go. And when you were old, sit under the shade of it. And the idea is that you can you can push them into a territory and that's the direction they'll grow, which is a thing that happens. Um, a lot of people end up making bridges out of figs by positioning the direction and they grow mm. across these sort of river passes, and that's your fig bridge, which is just naturally grown. It's astonishing. The photos so cool. are amazing, if anyone wants to yeah, see. Yeah, it's, it's mostly, it's in North India, isn't it? Where And yeah. it's basically suspension bridges, which massively predate our suspension bridges. And they're so long. I think the longest is over 50 metres long and over 500 years old because they do, yeah, they've got these incredibly strong roots that kind of you can, they weave around each other. And I think a lot of the bridges have a handrail. They will have trained some of the roots to grow into a handrail as well. Amazing. It's a long wait for your bridge though, isn't it? (laughs) When you commission the guy. (laughs) Yeah, Frederick Um, would not have had the patience to wait for that bridge. Um, So figs, yeah, they are, figs themselves are extraordinary as well in the way that they breed. Every fig that you eat has at least one corpse in it, probably lots of corpses inside it. Is that all of the figs that you eat, like the ones from the supermarket? Oh, technically, probably every fig you eat doesn't have a corpse in it because these days they're often done artificially. But Mm. if you're eating a fig that has been naturally propagated, it's got at least one corpse in it. Because the way they breed, it's an extraordinary way where... Every fig, and there are, I think there are more than 750 species of fig, has its own specific fig wasp. And the way the figs are pollinated is that a female wasp will burrow inside the fig. And weirdly, a fig is an inside-out flower, so the flower is on the inside, the bit that needs pollinating. Burrows inside the fig, and then she lays her eggs, um, and then they uh, spawn, and then they shag each other and fertilise each other. And then the males, the male siblings, crawl up and make a little tunnel out of the fig so the females can escape and then the males die, sacrifice themselves, females fly off and then they go and pollinate the next fig. 
beautiful. A it's beautiful amazing. Story. It's so yeah. cool. It's you've wild. kind of you've kind of glossed over the incest bit because a lot of the things, <laughs> the, the wasps that hatch are siblings. Reasonably, I yeah. think, to gloss over that bit. Yeah. <laughs> I think all of them are siblings, are they not? No, but they're not because you can get several different wasps crawling inside a, a fig which will then die, but they will have laid their eggs a, a, uh, yes. around inside the little seed bits. Right. So, Good point. Yeah. So you it's might not, not It's be, not frowned yeah. upon in the fig wasp world not. in the same way it is... For us. No. And that's why there are lots of corpses often is that the ladies kill each other, don't they? Because if more than one mother gets inside, then they have a duel to the death very often. What? To make sure I didn't that, know that. Yeah, to make sure that only one mother can lay her eggs. But then oh. the poor mums, the figs, amputate their wings as they go in, right? So yeah. the mothers can never leave. Yeah. So they're doing kind of... And then tenor yeah. as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Harsh. Have you heard of um, Mike Shanahan? Yeah, I've met oh, him. Yes. Oh, yes. You know right. Him? Yeah, yeah. He came on our radio show a few years ago. He's he is cool. amazing. He knows He's more Mr. about fig. He knows more about figs than anyone I've met knows about any other subjects, apart from perhaps Erica McAllister and flies. That's the only other person <laughs> I can compare. Yeah. He's brilliant. Or Dan Schreiber and um Nazi sacred myths. Yes. Um those, apart from those guys. Um so yeah, he's written this book called God's Wasps and Stranglers, which is Unbelievable! I've I've only read a chapter of it, but it's it is so interesting. Yeah. If you're interested in figs, this is the book to read on the subject. Basically, <laughs> I I actually found something that I think Mr. Shanahan got wrong uh, in his book. Ooh. Yeah, Go on. well, it was just we we're talking about royals and we we're talking about um, so Barbarossa and the fig. I found a modern royal that was associated with the fig, which is Queen Elizabeth II, who oh. was asleep in a fig tree when she found out she became queen. Um, Excuse me? Sorry, yeah. our, our current queen was asleep in a fig tree. She was famously in Africa, wasn't she, when she found out? Um, and it was a treehouse, was it, or something? I think exactly. she, no, no, didn't was... she crawl inside, she crawled inside a fig. That's and right. Unfortunately, she lost her wings and antenna on the way, but a nearby yeah. aquarium was able to pry her out. Yeah, but let's gloss over the incest for a second there. Um, <laughs> she, yeah, she was staying in a treehouse, and the story, the, the sentence is that she went up the tree, a, a princess, and she came down a queen. Um, but I think that they actually found out um, quite quite some t- 40 kilometres away from the actual tree where they were staying because they were out and about and Philip had delivered it in a sort of cabin. So it's not quite true that she was in a fig tree, which would have been fantastic. Wow, that's uh, so many preconceptions shattered there. <laughs> Everyone at home has had to adjust their whole belief system. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that library books can set on fire if you put them in the microwave. Mm, it's <laughs> ruined many a dinner for me, certainly. Mm. <laughs> All my cookbooks have gone up in flames. <laughs> <laughs> That's when it says cookbook, it doesn't mean cook this book. <laughs> Um, This is more of a public service announcement than a fact, uh, and it comes via a library in Michigan, the Kent District Library, that's asking people to stop microwaving their books um, to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And that is because they contain a little chip in them, uh, which is a kind of chip we've mentioned before called an RFID chip, which is what you get in your Royster card or in your contactless credit card or in your massive seal that you use to spy on the United States if you're Russia. And they're in also in these library books and they're made of metal. And if you put metal in the microwave, a lot of the time it will set on fire. And people have been doing this with library books and they've tweeted a load of pictures of very burnt library books <laughs> where people have been trying to... Trying to Sterilizing. So these 
these chips, you can't put them in the microwave. Are they oven chips? <laughs> very nice. Very good. But no, Thanks don't put much. them in the oven either. It's right. a very funny joke, Anna, but this is not a funny matter. <laughs> it's not yeah. a laughing matter. Got it. Um, I didn't know people have been doing this. Yeah. Well, they don't fully know why they're doing it as well. As in, they the, the article that I read sort of suggested that they're a bit bemused. It's not as if there was a ginormous moment on the internet where everyone said, do this to clean it. Um, mm. So something's popped up on a site somewhere where enough people in Michigan have seen it and, and done right. it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there's some, there is a, a fair amount of logic behind it, isn't it? Microwaves, in theory, could kill viruses, I suppose. And yeah, they heat things up. It's like really they high heat stuff up. Like, it's just, that's not what they're made for. So don't put stuff in the microwave that's not made to go in a microwave. That's <laughs> basically the tip. Yeah. And we think the best way to sterilize books is probably just to leave them for a couple of days, don't we? And most libraries just now leave them for two or three days. Yeah. So um, yeah. COVID-19 will die after um, a certain number of days. Uh, I think in perfect lab conditions, it's kind of over a week. But in real life, you know, you're not living in a bell jar with a perfect amount of air and no UV lights and stuff like that. So if you leave a library book for a few days, it should sterilize by itself. They did discuss, I think, UV-like treatment because people kept on saying, could you treat things with UV? And it was pointed out, as well as being quite carcinogenic so you don't, and expensive, you would need to treat every single page of a book. So mm. it would involve shining UV. You know, imagine getting War and Peace back. That's going to take two or three hours <laughs> to UV treat. And it's not like you can just get a little UV um, torch and just shine it on and that'll kill it. You need a special, very high energy oh. UV light in order to kill viruses. I was looking into like sort of library scares mm. and things like this and there oh, yeah. was a really interesting account of um, worry about reading contagion. In fact, there's a book about it called Reading Contagion because it was reported in 1911 in a library journal that books seem well adapted for carrying smallpox, measles, scarlet fever, trachoma, diphtheria, erysipelas, uh, dysentery, <laughs> typhoid, and tuberculosis. Erysipelas, really? Erysipelas <laughs> is in there, yeah. Pronounce again. Erysipelas. Pronounce it properly, please. <laughs> uh, can I just explain that while we're laughing at that? So yeah. um, I'll probably cut this out, but in our live show last year, we had a spelling competition where Andy would say very unusual words and Dan would try and pronounce them and then the audience <laughs> would try and spell them. And um, erysipelas was one of those. And I'd yeah. never heard the word before that gig and now it seems to come up virtually every week. It's following us yeah. around. And I'm still saying it, Erysipelas. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this was a fear because some readers would lick their fingers as mm. they were turning pages. So people got very worried about this. And there was one scientist who decided to experiment on it. And he did it by taking public library books, cutting out the dirtiest bits. I mean the physically dirtiest bits, not the rudest <laughs> bits in the book. So that he'd have most wear. And then he would soak the pages in saline solution. Then he would spin that liquid with the sort of gloopy matter from the library books in it then he would inject that saline solution into guinea pigs and amazingly all the guinea pigs died <laughs> Whoa! For, okay. all 40 of the guinea pigs he tried it on died yeah. wow and is that's evidence that they're catching germs from the book rather than just that he just injected <laughs> them with saline solution <laughs> well the, Do you no, know? they did die of proper things but it turns right. out i mean if you're no one reads library books like that no one Point. does that with library books. No, no, it would be an unusual uh, thing to do. And also they don't let you return them after you've whisked them through a washing machine and injected yourself with parts of them. Well, do you know in um, Boston, the Boston Library, how they clean their books when they get returned? No. They have a mini book-sized car wash that they send the books through. <laughs> 
So it's got all these compartments. It's on a conveyor belt, and it can do 12 <laughs> books a minute. Um, wow. They don't use it on the extremely rare books. Um, it's just for more modern books. And it's a dusting system as they come through, um, spinning brush bars and so on. It looks, you can watch videos of it online, and that's, that's how they clean their books. That's yeah. not to sterilize them or anything, is it? That's to get rid of all the dust and yes, all the Yeah, but any, anything that's returned just to for maintenance, basically. So but yes, not, not sterilization. Yeah. Um, uh, there was this this scare about book germs seemed to go on for a long time. So it started in eighteen seventies ish, I think, um, and it lasted, as you say, well into the twentieth century. And in nineteen oh seven, there was a law in the UK passed that said if anyone was ill, you were not allowed to borrow a book from a library or return a book to a library. And they tried, yeah, all sorts of experiments to figure out, you know, if they if they were spreading germs, didn't they? Yeah. They got lots of doctors involved. There was another one as well as the guinea pig one where they had monkeys drink milk off a germy book and then <laughs> see if anything went wrong with them. Again, difficult to return that monkey poo drenched milky book to the library afterwards. <laughs> I wonder if that law from 1907 still holds or not. Like, or probably not the same law, but like, I'm pretty sure there's a law that's around now that if you have plague, for instance, and you get in a taxi, by law, you have to announce it to the taxi driver before you go anywhere. And I think it's the same... I think it's the same Public Health Act that those two things are from. So I wonder if you have to announce to a librarian that you have a certain illness before you give your library books back. Wow. I don't know. Because it was basically someone died, didn't they? There was a Nebraskan librarian that died of tuberculosis. And that kind of made everyone think, oh, shit, you know, there could be something in this. Uh, But do you know the um, Spanish flu from 1918 or 1919? Yeah. Um, They thought that that could travel on telegraph wires because a load of telegraph operators got the disease uh, at the same time. Um, But obviously it was because they were all in a room together. Yeah. In the same air. Yeah, yeah. There was also one where uh, a load of bank tellers in a bank got sick at the same time and they thought that maybe it had come with the money. So it was like they thought that whatever was coming into that um, building might have been what caused the illness rather than one of the people giving it to everyone else. Mm. Yeah. Hey, um, when we were on tour last year in America, um, we were in New York and I went to the New York Public Library and it is stunning. Have you guys been when we were there? No. Or been any other time? It's really, it's sure. just this majestic building. And I saw that they had a lot of sort of relics of literature in there. So I started looking into it to see what else they have. And um, there's some great things about it. For example, what, there was one customer, as it were, someone who came every day and sat at the same desk for 52 years. And that was from 1923 to 1975. And it was the guy, it was a man called Norbert Perlroth who was the head researcher for Ripley's Believe It or Not. Hmm. And he used to sit in that library every single day or most days at the same desk doing his research. And because the research available in that library is astonishing. They have the largest collection of restaurant menus in the world. For example, they have 40,000 restaurant menus and it's used by chefs all over the world to sort of find old, you know, ideas for what they can do with their menus. But it's also used by um, biologists, marine biologists to study fish populations to see if there was a spike in what was being eaten in the restaurants around uh, New York at the time. Yeah, so it's used for 
sort of um, understanding ecology as well. Um, there's one library designer who designed libraries like the Qatar National Library, which is incredible, and also the Seattle Library, which is quite famous. I think it has a spiral of ongoing books. Uh, so you walk from the bottom to the cool. top and the library shelves never end. Anyway, this uh, architect is called, he's a Dutch guy called Rem Koolhaas. As in his name, nice. it's cool house. What a name for an architect! What That's a great so name! So good. <laughs> hey, cool house, cool house. Yeah, I hope he just hears that all the time. Um, just as this fact was about microwaving library books, I've got one thing on microwaves. Okay, I was looking for interesting microwave stories and things you shouldn't microwave. And in 2017, there was a man who had to be freed by firefighters after cementing his own head into a microwave. <laughs> He, he was called Jay Swingler, 22, from the UK. He and his friends, they mixed up seven bags of polyfiller and they poured it around his head inside the microwave, which was protected by a plastic bag. He wasn't stupid. All right. Um, so, uh, and unaccountably, it then dried and they couldn't get him out. They tried for an hour and a half to get him out before calling the fire brigade. Um, wow. This was all for YouTube. And um, the emergency services turned up and they sort of chipped the microwave apart. They destroyed the microwave. And uh, they then didn't find him very generously because they assessed that he had been at risk of dying. Sorry, I thought you said they didn't find him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They just keep chipping and keep chipping. He must be in here somewhere. (laughs) Anyway, Um, he was later interviewed and he said he, he hadn't wasted the emergency services time because they saved my life. Whereas I say that he did waste their time. (laughs) There was an interview with Robert Pattinson earlier this year in April uh, with GQ, which I assume they must have done over Zoom or over Skype or something, because um, he's in a house which appears to be a um, like a hired house rather than his own. Uh, And he's while they're interviewing him, he's making um, some pasta in the microwave. Now, he has come up with a new way of making pasta. It's a bit like a Pop-Tart, but you make your pasta and then you put a load of American cheese and sugar with it and then you cover it in cornflakes and apparently it's the most delicious thing that Robert Pattinson has ever eaten. (laughs) So he's making this while he's being interviewed by GQ and um, they're asking him about it and he he puts all the cornflakes on the outside and then he puts it all in tinfoil and he says, "Can you? are you allowed to put tinfoil in the oven? And the GQ guy says, yeah, you can put tinfoil in the oven. You're just not allowed to put it in a microwave. And then Robert Patterson goes, uh, I think this is an oven. And so then he puts his, um, <laughs> his like Pop-Tart thing in what he thinks is an oven, but which is actually a microwave. And they're still doing the interview at this point. And then about a couple of minutes later, the whole thing explodes. <laughs> The microwave oh explodes and all the electricity goes off in Robert Pattinson's house. What? And I've got to oh. say, this is the best interview I've ever read in my whole <laughs> life. And has anyone checked on Robert Pattinson recently? Because I'm a bit worried about him. <laughs> <laughs> my brother-in-law, Charbel, works in hotels and he once got a call up to a room because the guy who was up there had ordered room service, had his food, but clearly hadn't finished eating it. So... Um, he called Charbel up. Charbel entered the room and he said, I need your help. I was trying to reheat my food, but I can't get it back out of the microwave. But what he'd done was put it into the safe. <laughs> and he'd locked his bolognese or whatever he had. That's fine. So the code was probably three minutes or whatever. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> 
Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that one of the kings of Leon was called Alfonso the Slobberer. <laughs> the kings of Leon are still going. What do you mean was? Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad I'm glad you pointed that out. Obviously, Kings of Leon, great band. Three of them, Jared and two others. None of them's called Alfonso the Slobberer. It turns out <laughs> that before the band even thought about forming, there was a kingdom called Leon. And that's what they're very cleverly referring to in their name. And Leon is in the, it was a huge chunk of the Iberian Peninsula, so northwest Spain and what is now Portugal too. And it had a king in the uh, mid to late 12th century called Alfonso. And Alfonso was an angry guy. He would have fits of rage that made him foam at the mouth. And that's why he got his charming nickname, Alfonso the Slobberer. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah. We do know a bit more about him. We know he married his cousin twice. Not the same cousin, different cousins. So he had a type. And annulled them because of it, right? It's so bizarre that you can make that mistake. Like he marries a cousin and then he had, I think, three children with the first one. uh, And then suddenly it was like, oh, damn it, it's incest. Not allowed to do it. So it had to be annulled. And then did the same thing again, had five (laughs) children with the next one. Annulled again. I think the second one might have been his first cousin once removed. Yes, it was. But did you know? I I didn't know this. It's so interesting. I had no idea how strict the rules on incest actually were at certain points in (laughs) history. Well, we usually gloss over the incest on this podcast. (laughs) Um, So the church had banned marriages for relations up to seven degrees removed, which meant that you had to count seven generations back and it was illegal to. I mean, who on earth knows seven generations back? It meant it was illegal to marry anyone closer than your seventh cousin. So wow. it must have been an enormous hassle. If you fancied harsh. someone, you had to really trace, you had to go on who do you think you are to find out. <laughs> 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 uh, Alfonso also formed the Cortes de Leon in 1188, which brought together all the nobles in that area. And some people say it was the first parliament in the history of Western Europe. So that's one good thing wow. he, he might have done. Yeah. There were quite a few kings of Leon over the years. Mm. Um, Henry the Impotent, he was one. <laughs> Uh, He was supposedly uh, impotent as a result of a curse by the Bishop of Toledo. Uh, The curse was Mm. called Frigidi et Maleficiati. And it's quite a common curse that you would do in medieval times where you would, um, like, make someone impotent just by reading out this curse. Um, Although he did have a daughter, so it might not have worked. (laughs) Although the argument was, if he'd had this curse, it can't possibly be his daughter, so he must have... Must have been someone else's oh, child. It's always a way around it. Yeah. Maybe Gosh. the curse wears off after a while. Yes. Alfonso um, yeah. could have done with a bit of that curse. I mean, he had eight children within his two marriages, and then he had another ten children outside his marriages. Yeah. There wow. you go. Needed a bit of frigidiati at Maleficorium <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I read another guy, another king, um, who was in the 10th century called Di Sancho. Sancho the Fat. He was known yes, as. Yes, he was also a um, king of Leon, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, king of Leon. Interesting story. He basically was said to have been so overweight um, that it that it made it hard for him to walk. He couldn't ride a horse. He could he couldn't pick up a sword, and so he lost the throne. As a result, he was disposed as as a sort of weak king. And his grandmother took him to a doctor, and the story goes is that the doctor sewed his lips shut, except for a tiny little hole to put a straw through. <laughs> to give him what was effectively the first weight loss diet, which was you can only drink stuff through the straws as Mm. your food. And he eventually lost half of his weight, 
to the point where he could ride a horse again and pick up a sword and he regained the throne because he came no. back as a Where was as a my throne back? <laughs> I have returned after a long time doing a diet. And I he was immediately deposed because of his speech impediment. <laughs> At least he wasn't slubbering with that yeah, tiny little to sip his smoothie. Yeah. <laughs> He did wow. have a, a serious problem, though. I think the contemporary accounts say that he was, well, what, in today's measurements, is 38 stone, which is too heavy. No okay, horse big, can yeah. take that. And I quite like that the guy, it was just such a testament to what a mixed place Europe was then, that his grandmother walked him, sort of wobbled him along to a Jewish doctor, this guy was, who worked for the Muslim ruler, Abdul Rahman, and obviously he was Christian. It was such a melting pot. Mm. And yeah, cured him. And it's good because he replaced Ordono the Wicked. It sounds like if it's between the fat and the wicked, you'd probably go the fat, wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 Unless it was think... like a really kind of positive thing, like wicked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. And yeah. also, like, I suppose Sancho could be fat with a PH. He might have just dropped some heavy beats. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> they were true. all DJs, the kings of layout. Turns oh, out. yeah. If, if they were all DJs, then what about Bermudo the Gouty? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to watch his set. Uh, there were there were quite a few queens of Leon, as well as the kings of Leon. Mm. Uh, jo- oh, yeah. Joanna the Mad, she was one of them. Um, yeah. She was married to Philip the Handsome. And <laughs> uh, she really liked Philip the Handsome, uh, but unfortunately he died. And then she kind of lived with his coffin and would open up the coffin every now and then so she could kiss his feet. Um, mm. wow. That's why they called her Joanna the Mad. Actually, Alfonso the Slobberer wanted to leave his kingdom to his two daughters. So Sancha and Dulce, he left officially after he died, he left it to his two daughters. But basically, the people of Leon were not really up for female leaders. And the daughters, and I think I would have done exactly the same thing, weren't really up for having a big fight about it. So basically, they met with their half-brother's mum. So these three women met and they negotiated, look, we'll give this chap the kingdom and can we just have a bunch of castles and some money? And it was called the Pact of the Mothers. And nice. they just went and lived Ooh. the life of Riley somewhere. Yeah, it's wow. a good call. Because being, yeah. being a king or queen in those days... Very stressful. And the nicknames alone uh, would have done you in. <laughs> um, have you got so some many. more nicknames? Yeah. I found a few. These are, I'm, I strayed off territory a bit away from Leon, okay. and I just went to other regal nicknames. Um, oh, yeah. So there's a, there was a Byzantine emperor who was called Constantine, the name of shit. Uh, Copronymos what? is what that was uh, at the time, and it's allegedly because he shat in the font during his baptism. Oh, yeah. I know, so it's kind of a clever joke, actually. It is a bit like someone at school, like, being on a school (laughs) trip and having to shit in a bag and being called shitbag for the rest of school. For the rest of the... And for the reign, their reign as emperor as well. (laughs) Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. That would have happened when they were, like, less than one or just one for a baptism. I'm not saying it's fair, Dan. I'm not saying it's fair, but I am saying it's funny. James II of England was known as James the Bishitten or something, wasn't yes, he? By the he Irish, was. I think the Irish called him that or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because he because they wanted him to hang around and fight for them and then he fled to France quite famously, disappeared and just Is gave up right? the throne to William of Orange. <laughs> so they were like, well, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> That's Fair how enough. he went down. I have a quick study about nicknames in general. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was a study by Queen Mary University and they were looking into nicknames in online dating and how you can make yourself most effective which I know is not of any special interest to any of you three. Well, uh, I, I just need to know, on my Tinder profile, <laughs> should I call myself James the Slobberer or not? Okay. <laughs> right, exactly. So they studied loads of different research papers. They studied, 
like lots and lots and lots of previous papers on online attraction. And they fa- it's it's quite funny just the the things they found out or the headline results were quite obvious seeming things. So they found that nicknames with negative connotations like little or bug are linked with inferiority. So you shouldn't pick them. Um, and they said Aww. playful screen names were good. So the name fun to be with, that's the number two and then the letter B, yeah. was universally attractive, they claimed. (laughs) (laughs) They also said pick something near the beginning of the alphabet because if, like all sensible people, you arrange your dating profiles you're looking at in alphabetical order, um, you don't want to be lost in the bottom of the pile. So does that mean you should call yourself... Ah! Yeah. <laughs> like in the like in the Edinburgh Festival program, where you always have like the A A A A comedy show. Uh, yeah, exactly like that. Cause Zebedee or... the gouty He's not getting any dates. <laughs> I've just got a few more nicknames I found mm. of um, rulers throughout history. Um, so oh, there's you know so many Manuel the sausage maker, um, Wilfred the hairy. <laughs> Half Dan, the bad entertainer. That's not a good one. No. Come on. Yeah. Half King, Dan. Wow. That actually is your online nickname, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he was from Norway. He was the son of Einstein the fart. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, um, so he was very generous paying his soldiers, but he was very bad in providing food and entertainment for them. Okay. You buy your own food and entertainment if you've got a good salary. Poor old Half Dan. Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that's my fact. My fact this week is that there is a Chinese poem made up of 92 characters in which every word is pronounced shu. The poem is called The Lion-Eating Poet in the Stone Den, or shu, 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 shu. Sure. Now, (laughs) (laughs) for any Mandarin listeners out there, um, just to quickly say, I grew up in Hong Kong and I was taught Mandarin throughout school, but I have a foreign Mandarin accent, so apologies if I butchered that slightly. It's a very hard sentence to say. The poem is even harder to say. Dan, Uh, that is an easy sentence to say. Sure, 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 sure. Surely is the one that we could know. No, because you're saying it with one tone. And it's tonally. You just sound like a librarian there, James. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. So when you said it, it sounded to me, to my ears, it sounded like they were all the same tone. Sure, sure. So sure is neutral. Sure is the downward. Um, Sure is the upward. And sure. So those are four different shures that you could be saying as a result, um, mm. which is why it's it's if you say this poem out loud, even the best Chinese speaker saying it out loud, no one will know what they're saying because despite oh. the four tones, you can still have about 15 different words which have that tone of sure for, let's say, going on the upward sound. So it oh. is totally amusing to listen but to it out loud. Isn't it, it true? It works then? in character form. Isn't it true? I might be wrong about this because obviously I don't know anything about this language, but is it not true that in classic Chinese it works way better and in modern Mandarin and modern Cantonese it really doesn't work at all? Is yeah, that not, that's is that right. True? Yeah, yeah. But the cool thing about classical Chinese that I never knew this is that it's, it's quite similar to modern standard Arabic today, but the way classical Chinese was used from about sort of the 8th century until about 100 years ago, it was that it was a way to communicate between people who didn't speak the same language. So the, like, China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, all these areas in East Asia spoke different languages, but they all wrote in classical Chinese. And so mm. they have this thing called brush talk, where if you met a foreigner... You couldn't chat to them, but you could pass notes. And so you'd meet a foreigner mm. and you'd do brush talk. So 
I mean, it must have been extremely arduous, taken a lot longer, but you could just have a secret passing notes in class chat. Wow. That's pretty cool, yeah. isn't it? It's like when you go to an airport and the word for parking is the same in every country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like if everything was like yeah, that. Exactly. Could I quickly um, give a bit of a brief explanation about this poem and mm-hmm. the author of it? Because um, this was written by a man called Yuan Ren Chao, and he's a, um incredible guy. He wrote it in the 1930s, and it was done as a sort of linguistic demonstration to show that you could manage to stretch out um, these this one word into a 92-word poem. He he was an amazing character. He um, he moved over to America to study mathematics and physics at Cornell University, and he eventually did philosophy at Harvard. And he became a huge influence within the world of um, Chinese language um, for the Western world. So he, when he was back in China, if Bertrand Russell came over, he would act as his interpreter. Back in America, he recorded the standard Chinese pronunciation gramophone records that people would get to, wow. that would be distributed nationally, so people would understand a unified pronunciation of Chinese. In America. He translated Alice in Wonderland. Um, he wrote pop hits back in China. I mean, he was this incredible character. Have you heard um, his pop hit, by the way? I haven't actually. He and weirdly, he wrote the music, not the lyrics for it. Um, it's not 1930s. exactly it's not exactly the Kings of Leon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1930s Chinese pop is uh is not what you'd expect. And very repetitive lyrics, isn't it? It's like the two unlimited of its time. (laughs) His wife was amazing. Um, His wife invented stir fry, um, which is quite amazing. She wrote a book called How to Cook and Eat in Chinese in 1946, uh, which went through loads and loads of editions. What a specific title for a book. Uh, It had a very quick sell-by date. (laughs) It was was like the book of the year 2019. No one bought it after that year. Um, But um, she wrote a load of techniques that they used to cook in uh, China, um, but her terms are now used quite commonly in America. So the term stir-fry was invented by her and her daughter as well, who did a lot of the translation. Mm. Extraordinary. What's quite interesting and ironic is that people use this uh, poem as an argument against writing the Chinese language in the Roman characters, because they're like, it's way more complicated than that. And if you start putting them into uh, Latinic characters, then you just can't get the nuances. But of course, this guy, um, Yuan Ren Chao, he was very much pro-translation. He was a translator. So it's quite ironic that that has been used as an argument. Uh, but it is true that it's so hard to write down in Roman script. So there was actually someone who wrote beneath a YouTube video who was Taiwanese and I think was talking about uh, language spoken in Fujian and said that the sentence, grandfather hit his head on a metal tin and grandfather felt giddy is the word gong written eight times, basically. So like gong <laughs> is grandfather and then various other... Wow. So much fun word. That's such a common word. Wait, which language did you say that was, Anna? That was in Taiwanese and in oh, Fujian. Okay. And I spent about an hour this morning trying to practice the <laughs> sentence, the horse is slow, mother tells off the horse. Is it all Mars? Yeah. I think it's like ma 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 How's that sound done? Nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> well, it would sound nonsense anyway, as is the point of the sure, sure, sure. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's impossible to grip onto... I, I, you'd need to see that written in order yeah. to go, okay, ma, mother, ma, horse, ma, slow. That's that's where that would make sense for you. That's cool. why it's so hard. Have you heard of the Hmong language of Vietnam? Yeah. yeah that's but... got eight tones in it. Whoa. 
Yeah. So the word poor, depending on what you're putting, where you're putting the tone, can mean either female, throw, thorn, pancreas, to see, or paternal grandmother. Mm. So if you want to say, I can see my paternal grandmother's pancreas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They are brilliant, these little kind of oddities, though, aren't they? Because most languages around the world have something like that. So in the Ojibwe language um, of Canada, uh, which was one of the biggest First Nations languages, um, there's a phrase, gada na 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 a na na, which means... We should really go and get Anna, shouldn't we? No. Yeah? So <laughs> I it? think we might start using that one whenever Anna's late to the hotel lobby. Before Can we you say it again, James? It's gada na 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 a na na. I'm going to start singing that at the end of Hey Jude. Uh, just see if anyone notices. <laughs> Every time someone sings Hey Jude, Anna turns up going, what, what? I'm here. You know, um, the drummer of the band Emperor Yes that plays our theme mm, tune. Mm. Um, he had a song that he put out called Anique, who is someone who used to do our sound checks for oh, yeah. fish and record our sound. And um, he named this song Anique after Anique, and it got picked up by Apple and was used in an advert in um, Abu Dhabi in Dubai. And it was a very popular song. And what happens a lot over there is that people use their phone and Shazam to find out the name of the song. And so they knew that was going to happen. And after it had been sold, it had been pointed out that the name Anique in Arabic translates as I fuck. And (laughs) Apple was suddenly pushing a big song of their advert with I fuck. So... Adam had to desperately change the title of the song so that by the time it went out and shazammed, it was a different <laughs> song and he managed to do it within the space of 24 hours before it went out. Wow. Um, but yeah, wow. he almost caused international chaos with them. Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Everything's up there from all of our previous episodes to links to bits of merchandise you can buy. Okay, guys, uh, we'll be back again with another episode next week. Until then, do stay safe, do stay uh, well, and um, we're so happy that you continue to listen to us during this time. Thanks for doing that. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye. <laughs>